There is now more cyber guidance than ever for the companies that do business with the government. You can also expect even more when it comes to other new technologies like artificial intelligence. Congress seems to be back up and running, and there is business to attend to, to start reauthorizing a major component of the Homeland Security Department, and, oh yeah, also funding the rest of the government. To get a sit rep, I got the chance to speak to Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. So back in 2018, Congress established an office at DHS really to focus on countering weapons of mass destruction. So it's detection, prevention, how to deal with issues in the aftermath if there is some sort of incident. That office was given a five-year authority, and that does expire December 21st. It's worth noting that folks who populate this office, both in the civil service and in the contractor realm, have really specialized skills. And if this office is dismantled, as it looks to be, unless it's reauthorized, contracts will shift. It becomes unclear who will have oversight, who will do the work, et cetera. And no one can say you know, that tensions are easing around the world. If anything, they are increasing. And so to get rid of a countering WMD office that focuses on domestic territorial integrity really does seem to be a mistake at this point. If the job is as important sounding as its title is, I imagine that the authorities and responsibilities would fall to probably other DHS offices and things would just be spread out. And that's where you're saying the confusion may lie. Nobody would know where to go to if, you know, they have an issue or if something does happen. If something does happen or, you know, who has responsibility for what, the reason this office was created was to consolidate and to streamline issues and coverages and responsibilities. And so getting rid of it undoes all of that. And I would say it it is up for renewal. There is a bill that has passed the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. We are encouraging folks on the Hill to find a vehicle to complete this reauthorization. One concern that we do have, Eric, and and I'll be frank about this, is that the office loses its authority on December 21st, as I said. But to get there, you have to start dismantling it weeks ahead of time. So civil servants who have been assigned to that office will either get reassigned or rift. And that is not a word I use lightly. Contractors, you know, are retaining their workers on this work. But if they're unsure the contract is even going to continue, those workers, contractor workers might be looking for other employment as well. So this is an area where we need to attack and get this authorized sooner rather than later before we lose all of this wealth of knowledge and expertise. Yeah, you mentioned how unique this expertise is. And so the contracting field is probably not that large, but can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what sorts of contracts this office is involved with and just how many people that it is responsible for? Well, I don't have the numbers of people in terms of the contractors assigned. I would say we have a range of contracting officials within the department itself, but on the private sector side, these run the gamut from very large corporations down to mid-size, even some smalls are involved. They handle things like radiation portal detection. So when you come into the port of Long Beach or whatnot, you do get screened for radiation, for nuclear, for you know some of the waves that you can detect to make sure that whatever is coming into the United States is safe. These are also used in postal facilities, at airports. That is the kind of responsibility that contractors have in this space. And if there's any gap or any question of gap or loss of expertise in this area, we could really feel it in the United States. So what we are doing is encouraging Congress to find a vehicle for this reauthorization to get it done so that we can retain the goodness that's been created over the last five years. 
Speaking with Stephanie Koster from the Professional Services Council, shifting gears a little bit here on the contracting side, a few more boxes to check for contractors when it comes to cyber hygiene. What is the first things first sort of approach that contractors will have to take with all these new cyber rules coming across from several federal avenues? You know, Eric, it makes me smile because we've been talking about cybersecurity for so long now. We are seeing a plethora of proposed rules, interim rules, including everything except the one that we've been waiting for most um, on the Department of Defense side, which is the Cyber Security Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC, which has become my favorite four-letter word over the last few years. We are still waiting for the proposed rules. We understand that it's sitting with the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs at OMB. Hopefully, we'll see that sometime soon. But I would say the executive branch has not stayed quietly on the sidelines waiting for CMMC. They are proceeding full charge ahead. We have lots of different proposed rules. Last year, we talked on this program about activities the Securities and Exchange Commission was taking about cyber incident reporting. That rule went final not that long ago. We are looking at cyber information sharing, threat sharing, all sorts of information coming from the agencies. From NIST, the National Institute of of Standards and Technology, we are seeing a lot of work on the cybersecurity framework, which is really what's supposed to be the umbrella of standards that companies and agencies themselves have to adhere to, different standards for different kinds of folks. But that is all a swirl right now. And then to add on to that, the president just signed out an executive order on artificial intelligence, also giving some responsibilities to NIST. And so we'll have to watch very carefully how the cybersecurity and the artificial intelligence worlds come together. You know, it's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap here of what artificial intelligence can do and what it can't do or what it should do and what it shouldn't do. So that's what we're watching very, very closely. Yeah, and this is just the beginning, right? I imagine there are going to be several asks for extension for commenting and compliance. Well, I'm glad you raised that, Eric. Uh, Two of these rules, uh, proposed rules, the comments are due December 4th, but one of them is more than 100 pages long with lots of detail. The other one is close to that length. We, along with many other associations, have asked for a 60-day extension for both of those, bringing the due dates to early February. This is really to allow us to digest and see exactly what the implications are. One area I would mention is just due today, October 31st, is comments on an RFI that came out of the Office of the National Cyber Director the Office of the National Cyber Director is looking for how best to harmonize all of the cyber regulations. What I find interesting is that this request for information comes sort of at the beginning of this latest spate. Um, you know, we'll have a lot of things to talk about. These other proposed rules, again, I mentioned comments are due either in December or hopefully February. So remaining engaged with ONDC, the Office of the National Cyber Director, to make sure everything is aligned and makes sense. I think this is going to be a repeated conversation. Yeah, and the one that kind of could sneak up on folks is the new NIST rules when it comes to protecting controlled, unclassified information, just because contractors have already had a tough time even identifying what that is. And hopefully this will bring some clarification, I would hope. I would hope so, too, Eric. One of the issues that we're facing is, you know, different agencies have different interpretations in practice of what controlled, unclassified info CUI, or or some people even call it CUI, what that means and and who can own it, who can protect it, uh, and what to do. You know, it's not classified, so it's not governed by the structure of rules, regulations, and policies that govern classified information. But understanding what it is that you have when you have controlled unclassified information and how to treat it, we're really looking forward to getting the rules of the road there really defined so that we can move out on what needs to happen. 
All right. And new congressional leadership seems to be in place. Things are going to maybe get back to a little bit of sense of normality here. But he's got his work cut out for him, the new speaker, because there's always going to be a shutdown clock. And now he's on the docket. Uh, What is uh, your hopes for the future as this new leadership team moves in? I love this question, Eric. Thanks for asking it. Speaker Johnson, for many of us, came out of nowhere. You know, we were so focused on some of the other speaker candidates. But Speaker Johnson, when he was a then-candidate Johnson for the speakership, released a letter where he outlined his intent to get all of the appropriations bill across the finish line before the current CR expires on November 17th. We saw them take action last week on energy and water. This week, we are watching them try to move on the ledge brands, interior environment, and then THUD, which is transportation and, and housing and urban development. And then two more bills next week and two more bills the week after that. This was the same kind of plan that Speaker McCarthy had, um, but he ran into several roadblocks early on, not even getting rules passed so that they consider these bills. My understanding is that Speaker Johnson would like the House to pass all of these bills, send them over the transom to the Senate so the Senate can take action, and then focus on a CR for whatever length is needed for that full year appropriation cycle to go through. We are fingers crossed that this could happen. We'll watch very, very closely what will happen with those three bills this week, because you know this is sort of what trips Speaker McCarthy up, getting bills to the floor and out of the House over to the Senate. And so I wish Speaker Johnson all the luck in the world, but we're really going to watch closely to see if he's got the power necessary to get these off the floor. And maybe be able to capitalize off of some sort of honeymoon period, if that even exists for a position like Speaker of the House. <laughs> you know, it looks like that honeymoon is the very, very short, maybe delayed even. I don't even know. Um, but November 17th, which is the end of the current CR, will be here sooner than you know it. Um, and there's a lot of work to get done and very few legislative work days to get it done in. Stephanie Castro is executive vice president at the Professional Services Council. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um... This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.